6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews with a session entitled, An Addendum. Back in Daniel chapter 2, you may recall that's a chapter where Daniel is interpreting the strange dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which turns out to be a metal image that represents all the different kingdoms forthcoming on the planet Earth. And Daniel not only recounts that dream, he explains what it means, Daniel chapter 2. By the time you get to verse 44, we discover that these four main kingdoms, gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay, that these are all going to be replaced by a new kingdom. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Clearly, Daniel understood, and his listeners understood, that was a kingdom like the predecessors. Babylon, um, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. These are kingdoms. God's going to set up his that's going to replace all those, right? Okay. This whole saga, as I was trying to figure out how do I summarize this in just one session, it's really a study that, that could take uh, many sessions. Psalm 2 is one of my favorite psalms. It describes a cosmic war and it lays out the whole story. So we're going to just explore briefly Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 2. There are four speakers. There's the voice of the nations in the first three verses, the voice of the God the Father in the next three verses, the voice of the Son in the next three verses, and then the voice of the Holy Spirit in the next three verses. Kind of interesting. This is actually, you, you, you talk about the Trinity. Here is, you're going to eavesdrop a conversation among the Trinity. Interesting, and we learn a lot from this. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Oh, that's interesting. Saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. You know, even as a kid when I read this, the audacity of this. I can understand the world not believing in God. I can understand the world doing all kinds of things to offend God. I could not imagine the world taking up arms against God. We're going to break their bands asunder and cast away their... Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the first thing here, rage and vain imaginations against the Lord. That's step one. When did that start? Well, it dramatically started when they rejected the child in the manger. That became the, the presentation of the Messiah. That's reinforced from Acts 4. 
Acts 4, verse 24, when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. They said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine? It's quoting David in Psalm 2 right here. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the, Gent with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. The rejection, of course, of Christ. Okay, so we've looked at the first three verses. Let's take the voice of the Father who then, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Wow. The derision of the Lord, supposing that his covenant is going to be set aside. It's an allusion to 2 Samuel 7. We'll take a look at that. Very critical, unconditional covenant that affects every one of us. That he then confirms by oath in Psalm 89, verses 34 and 37. Let's just take a look at these verses. They're pivotal in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, God says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following a sheep, to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. Okay, so far so good. For I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in the place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused they, thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. David wanted to build a house. No, you can't do that. I'm going to build you a house, God said David. And when thy days be fulfilled... And thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for a long time. Know what it says? Forever. I think God means what he says and says what he means. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established, how long? Forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And that's what Gabriel told Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 32. We celebrate that every Christmas, but we may not appreciate the significance of what he's saying here. This is the Davidic covenant. Promise of posterity of the house, a throne of royal authority, a king to rule on the earth, and certain, established forever. The throne will be reestablished. Amos 9.11, quoted in the Council for Jerusalem, Acts 15, indicates the tabernacle of David will be reestablished in Jerusalem. This cannot be applied to the church, by the way. So let's not get confused with this replacement theology nonsense. Let's take a look at Ezekiel 37, a few verses there. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will, make, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they have gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. that sound like the church to you? I don't think so. 
And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. Wow. Four times the scripture seems to indicate David is going to rule yet in the future in Israel. Most of us presume that that's just the son of David, not David himself. Maybe, maybe not. He's been resurrected. Why couldn't he be? We don't know. I mean, there's good scholars that debate that issue. But in any case, David, my king, shall be over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given to, unto Jacob, my servant, wherein do your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children, for a long time. No, forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Their prince. Now that's interesting because when you study the temple in the millennium, it keeps speaking of the prince. Is that a title of Christ? Or is that a title of David in some subordinate role under Christ? Don't know. Good, good. Many people have speculated about that both ways. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and they will set up my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the background of the readers of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. So that you can understand the presumptions they're making here. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Wow. Let's take a quick look at the oath that God confirms in Psalm 89. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. God speaking. Do you think he takes himself seriously? Absolutely. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever. Whoops. I thought his seed ended at Jeconiah. Wow. Give any good Jew Jeremiah 22, verse 30, and say, what do you do with that one? Because after Jeconiah, that's the royal line, no, there'll be no one prospering after that. And where can the Messiah come from? It's got to come from the line of David. The answer, of course, is a virgin birth. His seed shall endure forever, his throne as the sun before me, and it shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven, Selah, Psalm 89. Okay. Well, now, the Father's continuing here. He says, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. What, when did this vexation start? With the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus predicted that as he rode that donkey. He wept. If you just known this thy day, the things that, been, that belong to your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Luke 19. This generation shall not pass, so all these things will fulfill, Jesus says. And in 38 years later, Jerusalem was wiped out, over a million and a half men, women, and children slaughtered by the Romans in nine months. Were any Christians there? No. Why? Because of the letter Paul wrote to the Christians. And we'll talk about that next time, some surprising discoveries. This vexation starts in 70 AD, and how far does it go? 
Hosea 5.15. I will return to my place, God says. Must have left it. Until they acknowledge their offense. Singular and specific. Acknowledge their offense. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. That's the purpose of the great tribulation. Is to wrap this up. I'll vex them in a sore displeasure. Matthew 24, 29. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Where is this king sitting? In heaven? No. On Mount Zion. The establishment of the rejected king on Mount Zion. Laid out here. Okay, let's see what he says. Let's talk a look. The, the father has spoken. Now let's see what the son says. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. When did, you, when did, when did, when did God say that? Huh? At his baptism and of the transfiguration, right? And here. Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Satan offered that to him in the temptation and it was, strangely, his to offer or it wouldn't have been a temptation. No, he went the hard way. He went by way of the cross. Praise God. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the thy inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for, for thy possession. For thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That whole, those three verses are a quote by Jesus himself alluding to the commitments that, been, that his father gave him. Okay. The subjection of the earth to his rule. Is that going on right now? You know, there are people, many good pastors, that teach that the church's job is to, is to subdue the, the world for the Messiah. Really. I know it sounds strange for our ears, perhaps, but that's what they really believe. No, that's not biblical. It's the other way around. <laughs> anyway. So here's the order we've had in Psalm 2. The rage and the vain imagination against the Lord is anointed in the first three verses. The derision of the Lord, supposing the setting aside of his covenant and his oath, which of course he won't. The vexation from 70 AD through the Great Tribulation, that's in verse 5. The establishment of the rejected king on Mount Zion. And the subjection of the earth to his rule. That's what we're talking about. That's, thy kingdom come. That's what you're praying for when you pray the Lord's Prayer. Well, there's still one, there's still a few verses to wrap this up in Psalm 2. The voice of the Holy Spirit. Verses 10, 11, and 12. Be wise now, therefore, ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Save the, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. The concept of kiss here simply means homage. Doing homage here. And uh, the, uh, um, there's a, uh, um, it's a strange use of the word bar, for, which normally means son, but Jerome and others render it to, Give pure, pure uh, uh, worship is what it's really saying. And so, uh, Psalm 1 then started with the Beatitude. Psalm 2 concludes with the Beatitude. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. So we're right here trying to get our mind around the Davidic covenant. The scepter of Judah. It was promised to the tribe of Judah back in Genesis 49. David's promised kingdom was a political kingdom. David's house was a dynasty, a royal line. The, the northern kingdom, when it had the civil war, had nine different dynasties. Judah, the southern, had only one, namely the house of David. That was even emphasized, strangely, but to, to God's remarks to Abraham in Genesis 17. It was prophesied, and David was prophesied in advance. His genealogy 
is we find encrypted in Genesis chapter 38. Now that's the book, that's the Torah, the book of Moses. Long before Joshua, Judges, and Samuel, and so on, you'll find Boaz, Ruth, uh, 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 Ishe, Jesse, uh, uh, Obed, Jesse, David. They're laid out there, 49-letter intervals. Fascinating. And, of course, in Ruth 4, that's what connects Bethlehem to the house of David, is the book of Ruth. It was also confirmed by oath in Psalm 132, Psalm 89, which we looked at in several places. Solomon's, David's sons, fail, by the way. Okay? Jeconiah, it's a, it's a downward thing to find a Jeconiah, which has a blood curse on him. And, of course, that's how God gets around all that with a virgin birth by going through not Solomon, but through Nathan, the second surviving son of Bathsheba, to get to the line of Mary through whom our Messiah comes. The blood curse is on the Solomonic line, not on Nathan's line. Okay. So Jesus has a legal claim through Joseph because he is the legal father of Jesus Christ. But there's an exception in the Torah having to do with the daughter of Zelophehad, which upon which Christ's legal claims through Joseph obtain. Mary was in the line of David, and, and her father adopts her husband as his son. And that's the way that all works. That's a whole study in some right. But the main point is, David's throne itself did not exist during Jesus' time on the earth. So how is Jesus going to sit on the throne of David? He couldn't have during his ministry. What does that mean? He has yet to do so. That's yet forthcoming. The covenant is declared to be everlasting. It's an unconditional covenant. That's all through the scripture. You can chase these down on your own. It was confirmed to Mary by Gabriel. It was recognized by the first church council in Acts 15, where James quotes Amos 9, verse 11, in this regard. And of course, we are praying that every time we do the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. That's what we're talking about. Now, it's interesting how the number of 12, you know, it's interesting, all of us have, how many have noticed the number 7 in the Bible? That's a number for the kingdom of God. It's interesting that the number of the kingdom of God, excuse me, yeah, the, the, the number of king of heaven is always 12. It really fascinated me to realize this. There are 12 tribes in Israel, right? How many apostles are there? 12. And those apostles are declared that they will rule over those 12 tribes, right? That's in Matthew 19 and in Luke 22. You'll find the same verse where Jesus says, Tells them, the 12 apostles. And by the way, those apostles don't include Paul. Because Paul is not an apostle to the Jews. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. That's why Paul didn't sign his letter. Because he doesn't want to step into the shoes of being an apostle to the Jews. Because that was not his calling, much as, he, much as he would have preferred it. That was Peter's role. They divided up. He, Paul went to the Gentiles. So Paul is writing a letter to those that he loves and he's concerned for, but he doesn't sign it as an apostle for that reason. But anyway, there's 12, 12 apostles, there are 12 tribes, 12 apostles. There are 12 kingdom parables. There are 12 kingdom mysteries. If you take, there are 12,000 seals from each of the 12 tribes in Revelation 7, right? The New Jerusalem has 12 gates, 12 foundation stones, and it's 12,000 furlongs by 12,000 furlongs by 12,000 furlongs, which implies it's a three-dimensional thing, at least. <laughs> there's there's uh, 12 kingdom parables. 
Two of them have a very troubling remark in them. The guests at the wedding feast, the guy that didn't have the right garments, gets cast into the darkness that's outside. And most of us, me included, have read that for years, always assuming that was, well, they're set to hell. We don't realize the subject of the parable, everybody there is saved. But this guy was not authorized to attend the wedding feast. So he's cast to the darkness that's outside, whatever that means. The stewardship of the talents has that same strange phrase, cast into the outer darkness in your English. It's actually the darkness that's outside. Okay. Let's take a look, by the way, as long as we're on all this. The Millennial Temple, it's an actual temple. This is not an allegory. The description of the temple is in Ezekiel 40 through 48. It's highly detailed. It tells you the thickness of the walls and steps and all that stuff. So it's not symbolic. It's a literal temple. All nations, not just Israel, all nations will worship there somehow. Offerings and sacrifices are resumed. Boy, does that bother a lot. In fact, there's so many aspects of this temple that are non-Levitical, it almost didn't make it into the canon. The way the, the priests are dressed and the things they do are not the way they are instructed in the Levitical system. No, this isn't the Levitical system. This is Melchizedekian, turns out. Offerings and sacrifices are resumed. Why? I thought Christ died once and for all, for everything, right? They're there for the same reason they had offerings in the Old Testament. They're memorials in advance. These will be memorials after the fact. Celebrating what? The cross of Christ. Strangely enough. Here's a, here's a corker. This is a disturbing thing that your Seventh-day Adventist friends will never fail to point out to you. Do you realize the Millennial Temple is not open on Sunday? It's open on Shabbat and on the new moon. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, but that's one thing they point out, that most Christians have no grasp of what the Sabbath is really all about. That doesn't mean we're shackled to observe the Sabbath. We have the opportunity to do so if we choose. The Sabbath is all about celebrating God as Creator. Anyway, moving on. If we take a look at the tabernacle, just, it's, it's the basic model for all this stuff. And in this diagram, east to the bottom, which is very typical for this sort of thing, we have the linen fence, the first thing you see. It's 75 feet by 150 feet if you use a foot and a half as an approximate cubit here. And that turns out to mean it's, if that's basically the, the uh, length of Noah's Ark, 300. Um, anyway, if the, the perimeter is the same perimeter as the length, of, I don't know that means anything, I just mentioned it. And if you go through the own, one door, one gate, you come to the altar of sacrifice, and then the laver where you washed, and if you went through that properly then, and if you were a priest, not just a Levi, but a priest, then you could enter the holy place and the holy of holies. And if we take a little closer look at the basic structure of the nous, the, 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 the uh, tabernacle proper, we find that as you go in its single door, you, that's called the holy place, it has another inner sanctum called the holy of holies. The menorah is the only source of light in the place. You have the table of showbread, 12 loaves changed every Shabbat for each of the 12 tribes. And the golden altar, or more precisely the altar of incense, which is just outside of, but associated with, the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies, you've got two things, not one, two things. We always visualize one because we think of the Ark of the Covenant as having the lid of gold. No, 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 they're two separate things. And that turns out to be important if you, when you study that more carefully. The Ark of the Covenant is wood covered with gold. It's deteriorating. It's ancient. But the lid, as we would visualize it, 
the mercy seat is not the way it's usually portrayed. It's actually a seat and is gold, and it is visualized in both the Torah and also in Ezekiel as, as if God is sitting there. In fact, when, he's, when the high priest once a year goes through great ceremonial preparations, when he enters it that one time on Yom Kippur, he sprinkles the blood between and in front of the cherubim. And Ezekiel gives us a clue there for the soles of his feet. Anyway, uh, so there's a, a lot we could talk about that. We have a whole briefing on that if you want to chase it down. But uh, every one of the, every detail, every, every physical dimension, every material speaks of Jesus Christ. The Word was made flesh and tab tabernacled among us, John tells us. He says, I am the door. Anyone that comes through but by me is a thief and a robber. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. And interceding for us in Hebrews 7.25. And of course, our sin bearer and our propitiation for our sins is, is every detail. And the entire project sits on silver sockets. It rests on his blood. Silver being the symbol for blood. We go on and on. Anyway, the second temple, Herod's temple, is not the one we're seeing in Ezekiel. The one we have in Ezekiel, again, has the same, you know, styling. No, excuse me, excuse me, this, uh, this is uh, uh, Solomon's temple. You have not one table of showbread, you've got ten of them, not one lampstand, you've got ten. And you have the, the, the expansion of, the, of the, uh, uh, the tabernacle when you get to the, the physical temple itself. And there's a molten sea and a holocaust altar and so forth. Okay. Um, the, you have an inner court and outer court. There are a couple of things in the temple that were not in the tabernacle. There's a place called the porch, and there's two pillars one, that have names, Yachin and Boaz. If you want to get into all of this and understand its spiritual significance, I encourage you to get my wife's book. Books, I should say, because the same model is exemplified in the way of Agape and the Be Transformed. And it also, it's prominent in her latest book, King, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. She'll talk about the personal storage for the priests and how that's where the priests stored those things that the unmentionables, their own little idols. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.